When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702. Asanya Mosaka. Lines are always open. On 011-883-0702. Well, it's 24 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock every Monday, just after 2.30. We hang out with the Naked Scientist. That's Chris Smith, and we speak to him uh, from the UK. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and this week is a special one because you're talking to me from Durban, actually in South Africa. I'm at a conference. I'm here at the BioAfrica conference, which is just into its first full day today. Oh, fantastic. I was actually in Durban. Um, I came back last night. I mean, you are in fine weather and in beautiful in a beautiful part of our country. Enjoy it. Well, actually, I did have a free day a couple of days ago, and I've always wanted yeah. to go up and see some of the Drakensberg because there's some really interesting cave art made by bush people up there. Uh, some of it's a thousand years old and older. So I wanted to actually go and see that because I'm quite interested in ancient yeah. art. And uh, I went up there and took some lovely pictures, and it's a stunning bit of the country. It's really lovely. That would have involved a little bit of hiking. Yeah, it did involve a bit of hiking, yeah. Um, and and it was very, very nice weather as well, which meant it was not just mm-hmm. a, a nice bit of hiking. It was a nice bit of hiking and nice weather, which made it doubly nice. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's go straight to the lines. We've got quite a few calls lined up for you already, Chris. AB, you're calling us from Johannesburg. Good afternoon. Hi, Zania. Abby Alistair is my name. Ah, Abby, welcome. Um, question for Chris. But first of all, Chris, um, Hopefully you enjoyed the mutton curry from Durban, the most the famous curry, <laughs> best curry in the world. Well, so, so I'm told, and I've yet to find a restaurant that's actually serving it because, you know, the hotel only offers a prawn curry. So I went down there to get some oh, decent curry because I'm a bit of a curry head myself, and the only thing I could get was this rather naff prawn curry. So I'm going mm. to try farther <laughs> afield oh, no. um, tonight. Uh, let's well, see if anyone can recommend. Abby, do you have a spot? Uh, well, I remember a place I used to go to when I was in the book trade called Denton's. Um, I don't know if it's still there, but it, it's like an old winky uh, restaurant. But it was the curry was the best curry I've ever ever had in Denton's. my whole life. Denton's, okay. Curry. Well, anyway, question. Yes, question. let's go for it, question Abby. For Chris. Right, it's a bit gory, but um, when we die, we get uh, if you get buried, you go into a big coffin, a fancy coffin. So and you get buried six feet under. How long does it actually take for the body to decompose? As in completely. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the soft tissue organs will go first. It's a horrible subject, this. But then uh, what about arteries and um, you know other tissues, muscle, etc.? Mm-hmm. Et they all decompose at the same time. And at first of all, the coffin must rot. The bones obviously stay around for a long time. But sorry, Chris. Sorry, <laughs> bad, Chris. Bad subject, but uh, can you answer that? Thank you. Thank you for the question, Abby. And, you know, Chris, I think this brings into, uh, this takes us into an area of passion for me because uh, these fancy what, coffins. Bodies? No. 
<laughs> no, like these fancy coffins that people insist on being buried in, and the kind of they, they we we are putting things that are necessary into the ground, you know, because they reinforced some of them with steel and so on. And I think some of the things that we do as part of that burial ritual is just so unnecessary. So anyway, let's get to Abby's question. Um, as he said, the coffin's likely quite fancy, huge, but what goes first? What decomposes first and last? Right. The answer to this question is like all these things, it depends. And mm. it depends chiefly on the soil type. Now, the reason I'm saying this is if you get buried in a bog, we have, for instance, some wonderful specimens of people who are 5,000 years old who were pushed in often in what we think were rituals and sacrifices into bogs. And they sank and those individuals have been beautifully preserved ever since because the bog water is very anoxic, very low in oxygen. And as a result, the kinds of microbes that break down tissue don't thrive very well. And the, the bodies are beautifully preserved. So the environment in which you are buried is a really powerful determinant of, of how quickly your body breaks down. And because wood is a living tissue when it's on the tree, it's a tissue a bit like your body is in some respects. So there are lots of fungi and there are lots of other microbes that have the metabolic knives and forks to break wood down in the same way as they break down your body. So yes, mm -hmm. the coffin is going to be something of, an, of, of a barrier there, but not a huge one. And your body is also full of microbes. There are more microbes living in you than there are cells in the rest of your body. So when you die, actually your own microbes start to eat you as well so that mm. the deterioration and rotting process will start to take place the minute you die and even before you go in a coffin and it certainly won't stop the minute you are in the coffin the, the so that that's something to consider as well but if you're in soil which is very dry then in the same way that the mummification process means that we've got the bodies of pharaohs and, yes. and other people from egypt preserved for, for five thousand years plus you know, we can we can dig up skeletons and, and remains of people very well preserved in very dry soil that very quickly dehydrates tissue and stops mm -hmm. the microbial degradation process. So that's another factor to consider. If you take an average soil in an average place, the, the UK laws are that you can use a grave again after 60 years. And indeed, if you dig a grave out after 60 years, then what's generally left is some bone fragments. So on the whole, most of the soft tissue just goes very, very quickly. And that mm -hmm. includes the, the woods of coffins and things. The, the things that don't go very quickly are the bones because they're much harder to break down because bones are made of, of basically minerals and they're much harder for microbes to eat. And as a result, they tend to stay for a long time unless the soil is of a type of soil that will very quickly yes. eat bone and degrade the bone. So mm. soils that are on average, you know, average soils don't do that very fast so the body bones the skeletons tend to be there for quite a long time um, and in some cases thousands of years but uh, if you're in soils that are very acidic or, or the other extreme very alkaline they can actually accelerate yeah. the degradation of the skeleton as well oh fascinating thank you for all the scenarios and abby thank you for the question next we have penny in santon hello penny hello good afternoon chris welcome to south africa <laughs> thank you um my question is uh, a little bit uh, intimate. I would like to know why um, I do eat a lot of greens, uh, especially spinach and lettuce and kale and that sort of thing. Why, when I pass a, a stool, does this come out uh, often? The, the spinach leaf is not even digested. It comes out whole. 
I guess, a slight um, irritation on the anus and the things, they just come out whole. What What is going on in my in my intestines that is not doing its job. Right. Okay. Uh, that is so definitely Chris, a first for this naked scientist phone-in. Don't think we've ever been asked that before. Uh, but yeah. the answer is we, you have to follow the food on its journey. So when you eat stuff, mm. the first thing you do is to chew food up. And the reason we have teeth to chew things up is, A, to make it easier to swallow, but it also breaks down some of the hard tissue and therefore makes it have a bigger surface area so that digestive juices further down the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, can access things and break them up. When things go into the stomach, there's stomach acid together with a uh, protein-digesting enzyme called pepsin in the stomach, and this further accelerates the degradation and deterioration of these products the stomach then just sort of dispenses small blobs of food products down into the small intestine where further digestive juices largely from the pancreas and also from the liver mix with the stuff and break it down further now once all the goodness has been absorbed the liquidy things which are in the small intestine then go into the large intestine where the residual water is reabsorbed back into the body but not much further absorption happens there but there are lots of microbes in the large intestine and so they tend to then break down further some of the things that we have eaten and they produce what we regard as normal feces now if you start seeing things come right through very quickly in a relatively undigested state then what's what's almost certainly happening is that a you perhaps didn't chew them up properly. Sweet mm -hmm. corn and peas are classic ones for this because they have a hard kernel around them that protects them. And the, mm -hmm. the hard uh, outside cellulose exterior to these things is there to protect the seed when it's in the environment. But if you don't chew it up, then your digestive juices can't get into it to break it down very well. Now, spinach mm -hmm. leaves are also quite tough. So if you don't chew them up hard enough, then your digestive juices can't break them up. Your digestive juices also can't break down cellulose, which is soluble fiber. It's what we call roughage in food. Yes. And yes. roughage is good because it binds a lot of water. So when it goes into your big intestine, it holds onto some of the water that's there and that keeps things soft so that they're easy to pass. So roughage mm -hmm. is really good. But perhaps what's happening to get these things going right the way through is that perhaps because there's so much roughage going through, because these things are very rich in fiber, they might be accelerating the transit time so much that the uh, stuff comes through without the digestive juices having much chance to work on it. And that might be mm. why you're seeing it come through. Children, this is, this is quite common in young children, in toddlers, when they first begin to eat solid food, you might get something called peas and carrots diarrhea. And mm -hmm. parents worry because they start seeing whole chunks of undigested vegetables coming through. And this yeah. is just because the gut hasn't matured yet and the digestive juices are not very powerful yet and the transit is quite fast. So as a result, oh. they, they don't break down properly. But I suspect that's probably what's happening. So chew it up and perhaps eat slightly less of it all at once. And then you're less likely for it to go bolting through so fast that uh, you, you won't see this happening so much. Right. On that note, let's take a quick break, Chris, and we come back to more of the calls after this. 702. You can call us on 011-883-0702. We're back with Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, and let's go to the lines because so many of them are lined up. Let's squeeze in as much as we can. William in Pretoria. Hi, William. Hi. My question is about um, these guys that find water before they drill. Yeah. So I moved onto a farm, and um, a gentleman came onto the farm with two wires. 
and claimed to be detecting where the water was. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, the wires just crossed. I wanted to know what the science behind that or does it really work? All right, water detection. Um, Chris, any thoughts on this? Hello, William. I think this is probably mostly bunkum. And actually, <laughs> while, these, while I'm not disputing that these people are good at finding where the water is, why two bits of metal should suddenly change their behavior and cross over in some bizarre way where there is a patch of water underground in one particular area i think that's absolute rubbish and there's there's no physical reason why that should happen what i do think these people are very good at who who do this professionally is reading the geography and reading mm. the geology and it's, it's exactly the same when people go looking for certain minerals or precious stones or gold they mm. get very used to seeing certain landmarks or features or giveaway signs that this is a good place to dig because mm. When you're looking for water underground, you're looking for water which is trapped in porous rocks, capped over with an impervious rock that holds the water there. So if you punch a hole down through the impervious rock, you'll access the water which is in the porous rock, which you can then draw up. And these sorts of geological formations tend to have characteristic signs in the environment. You might see, for instance, evidence of a watercourse flowing out down downhill of where you're thinking of drilling, or you might see evidence of, of trees and evidence that there's more water making up through the ground so it's greener in that particular area. So there are lots mm. of giveaways. I think the business with the wires is probably just there like a circus act to impress you, yeah. but doesn't have any kind of scientific basis that I can fathom. Right. William, did it prove to be true? Was there water there? Yeah, no, I didn't drill at the specific point, but I saw the wires cross and I was, yo, I was thrown back. Yes, you're like, what magic is this? Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's the explanation, William. Thank you very much for the call. Let's go to Nsigi in Johannesburg. Hello, Nsigi. Uh, yes, good afternoon. What I want to know from the KSND is uh, stem cell and answer to retinal pigmentosa. And the second question, what are clinical, tri- what are clinical trials? I, I understand that maybe next year there's a possibility that in South Africa, People with treatment or attempting one are going on trials. So what are clinical trials? Thank you. All right. Uh, that's Nsigi being very brief, wanting to know if stem cells can help with the retina pigmentosa and the kind of clinical trials going on mm. at the moment. Um, Chris? Yeah, the condition being referred to is retinitis pigmentosa. And this uh-huh. is an inherited condition. And people who suffer with this suffer progressive loss of vision And it Mm -hmm. is because the retinal pigment epithelium, which is a layer of tissue at the back of the eye, which is pigmented, hence the name, and does an important job when you're out and about during the daytime of soaking up stray light that goes into the eye so it doesn't ricochet around like a bullet around a cave and Mm -hmm. blur your vision. It also has a very important job to do cleaning up the debris and waste products from the retina to keep the back of the eye clean. And if this layer of tissue misfunctions or stops working properly properly then you can end up with the retina deteriorating and you lose the photoreceptors which are the rods and the cones that convert light waves into essentially brain waves so you can see mm. now one way that people are trying to change things is that uh, one is to do gene therapy and there are various ways to get genes into an unhealthy retina to replace the genes that are not working in people who have retinitis pigmentosa The Mm -hmm. other is that people are now making repair patches for the back of the eye. And uh, there's a group of researchers at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London who are doing trials on this very thing at the moment. And I've seen some of the data and it's very promising. And they Mm. have made a repair patch where they use stem cells to grow a new patch of healthy 
um, retinal pigment epithelium and they have a special way of inserting this under the retina and implanting the tissue and it then takes rather like a sticking plastic being patched over an injured patch of tissue it takes yes. the cells proliferate and they then adopt the function of the damaged or lost retinal pigment epithelium that should have been there and therefore they start to clean up the back of the eye and you can prevent the disease progressing and this appears to also be uh, effective as well in people who have undergone this so far so this is this is a good idea and it's very exciting what is a clinical mm. trial well a clinical trial is the is the key gatekeeper in deciding whether or not something as an intervention works and we have what are called phase one phase two and phase three clinical trials and they become more involved uh, more costly and bigger with each of those phases the first phase phase one clinical trials they don't seek to look at whether something really works what they seek to do is to make sure it doesn't do any harm because the worst mm -hmm. thing we can do for a patient who's already unwell is to give them something that makes them worse so the mm -hmm. first trial that people do is a safety trial if we're comfortable that the therapy has some kind of say or has a good safety profile the next stage in phase two is a relatively small trial where you give people who have the condition that you're seeking to remedy the treatment and you look to see if there's any evidence that it is making them better yeah. and if this looks successful you can then go to a phase three trial and this is a much bigger trial with much more in the way of patients and it should also be what we call a, a placebo control trial in many cases where you compare people who have the condition given a placebo plus whatever the gold standard treatment is or the new treatment and you then compare the outcomes and neither the patient nor the doctor should know what's being done because then there can be no bias and mm -hmm. that's that's phase three and mm -hmm. then once you get a drug onto the market you then go into what are called post post clinical trials post marketing uh, analysis and you follow up and see if if there are any further trends emerging about safety side effects and so on and so okay. with with some trials it's not possible to blind them for instance if you're if you're doing a heart transplant you can't really do a placebo heart transplant on someone they know they're getting a heart transplant so you mm -hmm. basically have mm -hmm. to do that um but you would you would have other ways of powering your trial to make sure that you were making objective measures in an unbiased way to make sure that basically what you're trying to to do really works and is worth going to the effort of doing it's not making people worse right let's go to mpo calling from uh, brooklyn good afternoon pa hi Ava. let me just go straight to the point yeah i think there might be a reason for this in offices that are work at, you find out mostly where there's white people mm -hmm. the icons are thrown to like the coldest point and with us african people are skin it's not that, I don't know, is there a, an explanation to that? And so, again, I have another question regarding our nose shapes. Africans' nose and uh, European nose, the way they're shaped. Is there a scientific uh, explanation to that? So nose shapes and you're saying um, our tolerance for cold temperatures from the aircon uh, is different. Why is that? It's not just um, race that finds these things differ. It's also mm -hmm. sex, because on the whole, women tend to favour a higher working temperature in an office yeah. than men do. People have actually done studies now because we realise that a lot of the data like that are out there oh, on 
the ideal conditions to have for your office or your workplace. Mm -hmm. They were all based on measurements made in the 1960s when offices were chiefly full of men. And so when women come to work, women tend to have a different stature to men. So they've got a different surface area to volume ratio. So they lose heat at a different rate to men. Women also Mm -hmm. dress differently to men. And therefore, not surprisingly, they favour potentially different temperatures to men and we've we've found now that on average women prefer the temperature to be a couple of degrees hot uh, warmer men prefer the temperature to be on average a couple of degrees cooler Uh, Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing in terms of the way we all look we are all looking the way we look because we're the product of evolution and evolution selects for an organism to have a structure and a function which is ideally matched for the environment and the challenges that that environment throws at that individual Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, a person who has white skin has white skin because they've lost the ability to have black skin. When humans first appeared on Earth, our ancestors would have been hairy and they would mm-hmm. have had pink skin under their hair. As they lost their body hair, they evolved to have darker, more pigmented skin because living in and, and early human ancestors all evolved in Africa. Those individuals would have suffered very high radiation exposure from the sun. This would have led to a reduction in the amount of folic acid because folic acid is degraded by ultraviolet rays hitting the sun, uh, hitting the skin. Folic Mm -hmm. acid is really important for the growth of cells in the body. And if you don't have enough folic acid, you're more prone to have a baby which has a a condition like spina bifida, a so-called neural tube defect. So ancestors would have evolved to have dark skin to conserve their folic acid. Then when they moved out of Africa, because about 55, 60,000 years ago or so, we think, is when the major exoduses began to happen out of Africa and people yeah. began to populate high latitudes. They would have got up into Europe. And apart from this summer, when we've had ridiculous weather, the sun doesn't shine very much, <laughs> certainly doesn't shine very much on Cambridge. And <laughs> as a result, people with very dark skin would have then found that they didn't have a problem with folic acid anymore, but they sure as hell had a problem now with vitamin D because you make vitamin D when the ultraviolet rays in the sun hit the skin. And -hmm. if you don't have enough vitamin D, you can't soak up enough calcium from your diet to make your bones Mm. strong. So people then evolved to have lighter skin, and uh, that enabled them to capture more ultraviolet rays in the sun and make more vitamin D, and they didn't have to worry about the folic acid. So that's an example of skin color, but then there's also the other things about, well, shape and size. So exactly the same way, we are being selected by evolution to have a shape, a form, a color, a stature that best suits the environment in which we operate. And that's true anywhere on Earth. Yes. Oh, there's still so many more questions we couldn't get to, Chris, but we're out of time, sadly. We'll do this again on Monday. Give everybody another opportunity, of course, to ask their questions to you. Enjoy Durban. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. See you soon. And of course, any recommendations for mutton curry where I can get yes. a good one, please, please send me a tweet to at Naked Scientist or email Chris at the Naked Scientist dot com and I, and I will pay them a visit and I'll, I'll report back on Monday what it was <laughs> Give like. Give us a review. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.